Maundy Thursday. You're all wondering what Maundy means right now, I know. Maundy comes from the Latin mandatum, from which we get the word mandate, as you might have expected, or commandment. So we call this Maundy Thursday because it was on Thursday, the day before the crucifixion, that Jesus gave a new commandment to his disciples. So this is the Thursday of the commandment. So here's the scene in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, John 13, where we'll be tonight. Jesus is sitting in the upper room with these 12 men, his disciples. They're sitting around the table sharing the last supper they would have together before the garden and the cross. Jesus loved these men. As they sat around the table, he demonstrated his love for them. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 13 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, referring to these men, he loved them to the end. And as they're eating, Jesus gets up and he washes, washes their feet like, like a humble house servant. The creator, the sustainer of the spinning planets in the universe bends down to these fishermen's feet. He takes a towel and some water and begins washing them. Just a display of humble service. And this is the nature of Christ's love, serving, giving. He sits back down, and then he passes the bread to Judas and literally says to Judas, what you're planning to do, go do it quickly regarding his betrayal. Don't let that detail pass you by. Jesus instructs Judas to go. Jesus gives the word that initiates this series of events that leads to his death. He initiates it. He kicks off this machine, this series of A sequence of events that will end with his own body being pinned on the cross. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. The love that Jesus demonstrated on dying on the cross was not a solicited or coerced love. It arose from his heart. It was planned, well-ordered, designed specifically to meet the need of those he loved with no regard for the sacrifice that he himself would make. So this chapter, John 13, before we even get to this command to love one another, is already rich with the love of Jesus. It's just bleeding out between the lines of this chapter. You see its love for these men. Well, after Judas leaves the room, Jesus and the other disciples remain there, and they have some sweet conversation, an extended conversation. It's mostly Jesus talking over the next several chapters. and begins this conversation in verse 31 of chapter 13 and then carries on for several chapters. So let me begin reading in, in verse 31, and I'll just read this one paragraph. John 13, verse 31. When he, it's Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
So the new commandment for which Maundy Thursday is named is, is this commandment, the commandment to love one another. Now, if you haven't read the Bible much, then you might not realize this, but the command to love one another isn't really that new at this point. In fact, we're told that the summary of the entire Jewish law in the Old Testament was to love one another. Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus makes some interesting points of clarification about this new commandment. So return again to verse 34 and look at that. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. What's the very next thing that Jesus says? Just as I have loved you. So before applying this commandment to love one another, they had to stop and consider how Jesus had loved them. So Here's the first point of clarification, that Jesus calls for a love that mimics his own. You know, this is what is new about this commandment. The command to love had been around for over a thousand years. Leviticus 19 says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Gives the command and then this, this little phrase, I am the Lord. In other words, the command to love was rooted in the character of God. He is love. And so when he created a people for himself out of the nation of Israel, he wanted them to be distinguished by love for one another. Now we know that God gave strict laws to the Jews, that he wanted them to be separate and distinct in the way that they lived. He wanted them to be holy, and so they had all kinds of obligations that they had to live up to and detailed laws to follow. The Israelites lived under law, but Christians, we live under grace, right? This is true, but even under the law, with all its strict demands and punishments, Israel was called to be a community of love. You know, God's demand for holiness and his desire for love are never at odds. And and, And Israel, his nation, was to be both holy as well as loving. Israel always failed in holding those two things in tension. They failed to be a loving and holy community. You know, they were good at times at piling up obligations and pointing fingers at sinners. Think of the religious leaders in Jesus' time. But they couldn't quite manage this legislation about loving. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament condemn Israel for their failure to love, telling them over and over again that one of the most prominent reasons that God was upset with them as a nation was that they ignored the affliction of orphans and widows. They failed to be a loving community. But Jesus, and Jesus is the new Israel. He comes and he fulfills all the demands of the law. Living as a human, but living perfectly. No failure at any point. And above all, he is loving. He embodies the law. And he embodies this beautiful tension between God's demand for holiness on the one hand and his desire for love on the other. Jesus obeys every fine point of the law, yet does so in a way that prizes love above all else. So he cares for the outcast. He has mercy on the needy. Jesus is obedient to the Father in all things, and yet loves the fatherless. So, why does Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, when indeed this commandment had been around for so long? Well, it's new because he has now fulfilled the original commandment. He has become a living picture for them of how to do this. And now he calls them to mimic his love. So, 
Anyone who would be a follower of Jesus must meditate on him, on how he loved, just as I have loved you. Let me ask you a question. How has Jesus loved you? You How is this man who lived 2,000 years ago, whom you've never met face to face, how has he loved you? It's clear enough from the Gospel of John you read through. It's it's clear that he loved the disciples. He loved these men. He cared for them. He walked with them. He associated with them. But that he loves you, how is that? When his first letter to the church, the disciple John, the very same disciple who wrote this Gospel we're reading, in 1 John 3.16 he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He laid it down. No one took it from him, but with great resolve and determination, he laid it down. He knew what had to be done in order to rescue sinners. There was only one way. He had to die. He had to die for us. He sacrificed himself for our benefit. And so in this way, he establishes his love for you. He gave himself for you. Consider for a moment the nature of Christ's love for you is motivated by your need. We need reconciliation to God because we have abandoned God. The 12 disciples, Jesus' closest followers, betrayed him. The very same night that Jesus spoke these words to them, They betray him. They flee him later this same evening. And we are just like them. We have betrayed God. We, like them, are ready to cast aside obedience to God and association with Christ in order to gain almost any temporary security. For instance, God calls us to be gentle and to put away anger and contentiousness. And yet, a thousand times over, driven by our own passion to be right, we latch on to seething resentment. When another person might challenge our position, we can't bear the insinuation of our imperfection. So in those moments, we betray God and befriend anger. The problem is even bigger than this. We are not fundamentally good people who slip into momentary betrayal. We are traitors to the core. It's who we are. For instance, when we survey the details of our lives and render the judgment that God has not been good in what he's distributed to us, we prove ourselves to be traitors. We deny his goodness. Likewise, when we look for happiness in that which he has not provided in the specific circumstances of our lives, We prove ourselves to be unhappy with him. We, again, deny his goodness. So, the average person, we are not on speaking terms with God. We have a broken relationship. And we need a mediator. Someone to mend this broken relationship and bring the offended parties together. Jesus saw us in this pitiable condition. He saw we had a great need. We needed to be reconciled to God. And so he came and did the one thing that could meet that need. He laid down his life for the traitors in our place. He abandoned his own life in order to take those who had abandoned him and return them to friendship with God. This work demanded his death. 
This work demanded that he would bear the penalty that traitors deserve. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew why he came. Thus he knew that he would die. And Jesus knew how he would die. Can you imagine knowing the precise day that you would die? What an overwhelming thought that would be. Can you imagine knowing in exact detail the excruciating torture that would associate your death? Jesus knew these things and did not flinch. Jesus, knowing the sacrifice that would deliver you and I from the fear of death, resolved himself to die for us. He laid down his life for us. Consider his love. In this it is strong, unwavering, and even the most severe of threats, and yet in its purpose, so compassionate and full of mercy. He suffers for us. His love is applied to us in great tenderness and affection. The love of Jesus was rock hard in its substance and yet soft in its application. For traitors to be reconciled to God and regain their hope of life in Him, the traitor's penalty had to be paid. There had to be death. Jesus saw that need and cast aside any love for His own life in order to love us. So how has he loved you? He considered your need more significant than his own. This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. Just as I have loved you. Jesus looks around at his disciples knowing that he was about to die for them and for all who would follow him like they did. And he says, just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. So we begin by meditating on his love and how it is that he has loved us. By dying a traitor's death, he has reconciled traitors to God. He saw the need and he did at the expense of his own life what was necessary to meet that need. But in these verses, we learn that he also creates a community of people who reflect his love. Not only does he love us, but he creates a community of loving people, contemplating the love of Christ, considering how it is that he has loved us, should lead us to a gratitude that overflows in love towards others. So picture this, picture God's love cascading out from his fullness, He is all goodness and all love. And that love rushes over the banks and spills into our hearts. Our meditating on the love of Christ then results in this desire to reflect that love in our lives. You see the internal connections in Jesus' instruction here? God pours out His love on us in Christ. And then meditating on His love, just as I have loved you, We turn and pour out love in the way that we live. So you also are to love one another. The love that God displayed in the death of Christ then should form our understanding of who God is and how he loves. So our view of God, that God is love, then changes who we are. 
It's our view of God that most deeply shapes us. We become like what we worship. So one author called it a transforming beholding. As we look upon the love of Jesus, we are changed by it. As we behold, we are transformed. So the love of Jesus then forms a community blueprint. As we survey his love, we see how our community ought to be built. As we meditate on the love of Jesus, this love that sees the need and sacrifices all to meet the need, it should compel us to spill over in the same kind of love. Because Jesus emptied himself for you. Love to others is the response that makes sense. Another writer said, self-sacrificing love is thus made the essence of the Christian life. This is who we are. We sacrifice of ourselves to love others. So, where is the need for love in our faith family? You know, who has the need among us? We should each be experts at knowing the pockets of need among us. And then we should be strategizing carefully, creatively plotting to love one another and to meet those needs. Behind the closed doors in the Christian community, we should be plotting to love one another. Look for lowly ways to love. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Mary anointed and washed Jesus' feet. Don't always jump at the visible and most prominent acts of loving service. Look for needs where you can demonstrate love quietly. Small acts of service that will quietly improve the joy of those closest to you. And strive to love as Christ towards them. And when necessary, persevere in doing that. If perseverance is necessary, consider the love of Christ in all that you do in service towards others. Give thanks to Christ for His love to you. Don't serve begrudgingly. Serve out of the overflow of this transforming, beholding kind of meditation on the love of Christ. Notice another clear implication of this verse. The implication that those who are not disciples would see the love of the disciples and by seeing that love would know Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So here's the danger. We, we must not love one another behind a cloak of anonymity. In other words, Jesus indicates that his followers should be recognized by others who are outside the community due to their love. It should mark them out. So one danger for us is that we would hear one aspect of this command, to love one another, and yet ignore another aspect of this command, that non-Christians would see this love, that they would be able to observe the love that's going on in our community. So as those outside of our community of faith observe through relational windows, as it were, what's going on inside our community, they'll know that we follow Jesus. As compelling as the love of Jesus was to those around him, so compelling should be the love of this community here. Not the community within these walls, but the community within these relationships. So you need to ask yourself, how can you create windows for those who are not following Jesus to look in on your life and observe this pattern of following Christ-like love? 
we should be experts at loving within the community, certainly, but not only within the community, also around the community of faith. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. Your good works, good works motivated by love, may be the light that turn people to the Father. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, let this Maundy Thursday, the Thursday of the commandment, mark an increase in love for you. It's a new commandment because Jesus fulfilled the first commandment to love, thus giving us a pattern for self-sacrificial love. That's the sense in which it's new. Our community then should be distinguished by this love. The list of expressions of love going on around this place should be long. When the Gospel of John, after Jesus gives them this new command to love one another, calling them to consider his love for them, he continues talking with them for some time, displaying his love for them by his patience with them, his prayers for them. Then they leave the upper room and go to the garden where Jesus continues to pray for these men. As he prays, he bows his head before the Father and pleads with the Father, Let this cup pass from me. The cup that he refers to is a symbol of all the suffering that he would endure. Yet even though he pleads to avoid the anguish, he pleads with even greater intensity, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father's will, which Jesus pursued in love, was to drink that cup to take into himself the fullness of the Father's wrath against sin. He would drink that cup and spill his blood. So as we turn to share in the Lord's Supper now, as Jesus did with his disciples on that Thursday night, let us give thanks for the unparalleled love of Jesus. Let me pray for us and give thanks. You can respond also in prayer, and Tom will close us in just a moment.